The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 21, 17-32. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself have also lived in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, David. Well, I don't know um, about you, but any time two major figures uh, in our world get together, um, it creates waves. It creates a a massive amount of attention. And... um, It could be political figures, you know. Often in uh, Nashville, we've had debates, uh, a lot of uh, debates, particularly at Belmont, and it creates a lot of stir. Um, People really um, uh, either are uh, amazed by that or interested in that. Technological. You can have um, major technological figures come together and think, oh man, there's about to be something coming out that's huge, some new thing. Uh, that if these two people are joining, uh, it must be a big deal. It'll be musical. Um, I've enjoyed a few uh, concerts where, you know, I'm, I'm there for one person and they bring out another massive uh, singer, like, a, you know, a Justin Timberlake and Chris Stapleton, like these two people that you wouldn't necessarily think uh, play together. Now you see them together all the time playing. Uh, I think as of uh, the most recent is um, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I'm sure all of you are very, uh, whether you 
follow those figures or not. <clears throat> now you are, whether you want to or not. Um, it is funny because the sports world and the musical world have come together in a, a massive way. And as uh, I've been told by several, uh, <clears throat> Taylor Swift doesn't need this. She already owns the world. So uh, Travis Kelsey's just getting, you know, the, the sloppies, you know, of this uh, social media frenzy here. So, but it really is ridiculous. And, and even yesterday I was watching a game that had nothing to do with it. Uh, the ESPN announcers just said, hey, what do you, hey, I've been watching Travis and, and Taylor. I'm like, dude, I'm not, we're not even watching that. Like, that's not even, is she going to be at the game tonight? Like, that's what everybody's asking. Like, uh, and as I hear from uh, people I know close to me, they're like, we need this right now. This is amazing connection. These two people are making the world work right now. It's awesome. Um, you know, when two people come together like that, it's huge. When you look at this passage, and as we've been walking through Acts, there are two names in here that when we read them maybe together, you're like, okay, the, yeah. But when they saw them together, this is an enormous thing. You see James, the name James, and you see the name Paul. These were the two leaders of the Christian world, James being the leader of the Jewish Christian world and Paul being the leader of the, the Gentile Christian world. And when these two figures were together, it was a massive thing. There was something big going on. And every now and then, you saw their names come up. Typically, they were in their own headquarters, in their own cities, uh, in their own missions, doing their own work. But in this passage, we see them together. And we see one of the biggest questions of the entire book of Acts about what the church is doing. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, especially if you're here this morning, you're like, Acts, I don't, I don't know. Acts was a, a volume two written by Luke. So if you've heard of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Luke, that gospel writer wrote Luke and then as a volume one and volume two was Acts. And Acts is about how this small thing of Christianity, it was called the way, if you read through the book of Acts, how did this small thing become a massive thing and explode into the world? How did it become a, a, a world-changing deal from this small little thing? And, and particularly the question here is, how did the church grow? Uh, was it special programs? Uh, was it a great catchphrase? Was it a really good vision statement they put out? Like, did they make the right thing? <laughs> We're gonna actually look this morning at how did the church grow? And I wanna submit to you something that, that uh, you may have heard me mention before or, or someone else, that the church had what was called a fixed theology and a flexible methodology. Now that's really key. They had a fixed theology that the theology, what they believed about who God was and his character was fixed. That did not change. But what you see in this passage that's really interesting is, okay, there's this purity, like Paul's having to like shave his head. What, what is going on here? The church was willing to take up what was called a flexible methodology, that <clears throat> flexibility in the way that they applied and they went into certain places and handled the gospel, the good news of Jesus not by changing the theology, but by how they brought it to different people. And that is really important. 
Because what I think can happen to us that can be really dangerous and scary, and we'll look at it, is we can switch that. We can switch that and make our methods fixed. This works. This is what, this is what helps me. And then when we find that it doesn't, our flexible theology becomes, who is God? So we're going to look this morning at two things that I think sum up this passage well. One is <clears throat> the fixed theology. And second is the flexible methodology. In verse 17, it begins this way. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. There they are. Luke wants us to know, Paul, James, huge figures. So when Luke wrote this, he's wanting us to recognize this is a massive coming together. And what they talk about is key. And I, I want to I touch on just a reminder of who James was and who Paul was. Because it, <clears throat> I never take for granted. Again, what we typically do in, in our services, just so you know, we believe the Bible is God's word and we unpack it. We take a passage, we take a book of the Bible, and we're unpacking it. Now, James, who was James? James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus. And he was the leader of the Christian uh, Jewish world, Jewish Christian world. And you can read about him all through the Gospels, like dotted through. <clears throat> and you can read about him in Matthew and Mark and Luke and in John. And think about this. Can you imagine? Now, now James didn't become a follower of Jesus till later. But imagine him growing up with Jesus. This is the half-brother of Jesus. So you read along the way, what does James think of Jesus? Now you see it in kind of generalities. But it says in, in certain passages, like even in Luke uh, and other places, Luke writes that, he, and he must have interviewed the whole family, that when Jesus would speak, they would say things like, we think he is out of his mind. That is, that is an actual quote. <laughs> Our brother is crazy. When he got lost at the temple, Jesus gets lost, he gets left behind, and he's sitting in the temple reading out loud the word of God to all these adults, and they found him. Don't you know James was like, what is up with our brother? Like, keep it together, man. I mean, what, what do you think it was like? I mean, what a funny thing to grow up with Jesus. Dude never gets in trouble. I'm always in trouble. Like, you got to try on for a minute the reality of James's life with him. <laughs> but here's what's crazy. James didn't become, and Paul actually writes on this, James didn't become a follower of Jesus. Now, he was a relative of Jesus. Here he is, the half-brother of Jesus himself, and yet you can be that close and not believe in him. He doesn't become a follower of Jesus until Jesus raises from the dead and shows himself resurrected to him. And you can read even about that account in 1 Corinthians. Paul, the other major figure in here, writes about James encountering Jesus, the risen Jesus. Can you imagine James coming to faith after all of this life with his brother, seeing it unfold from, from childhood on, then losing his brother, thinking, oh, yeah, there's something amazing about him, but even his ministry didn't fit. And then not until he raises from the dead and shows himself 
to James is James become up not just any longer a brother but a follower he appeared to him and Paul wants us to know that that's James Paul the leader of the gentile Christian church who was a Jew in fact <clears throat> the irony of this is that Paul was Jewish and steeped in Judaism in fact you can read about his his uh, education <laughs> his desire for the Jewish culture and people, and he was a deep persecutor of the church. Earlier in this book of Acts, we taught on this uh, months ago, Paul was putting people in jail. He was approving of even murdering and, and executing people who were, as in his mind, out of step with what he saw as following God. The way was dangerous, and then on his way, on the road, Jesus appears to him, shows who he is in Acts chapter nine, blinds Paul, and says, Saul, Saul, his name was Saul at the time before he changed his name to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's thinking, what, I'm not, who is this? I'm, well, I'm not persecuting, I'm persecuting these people. But what is he really doing? He's persecuting Jesus. And yet Jesus, he, this is after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended, he shows himself to Paul. Paul comes to faith in Christ. And here he becomes the leader of bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, to people that were excluded because he knew what that looked like and to bring it to them and here they are both groups and what are they discussing they're discussing what does it mean for us to deal with the law of Moses and they say this after greeting him <clears throat> they, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul says, hey, here's what the ministry's doing. Here's what God is doing through this ministry. And they glorified it. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands were, are among uh, the Jews of those who have believed. And they talk about to each other, they're encouraged about how many Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And yet here's the question that follows up over and over. And they ask this question. In verse 20, they are zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And here was the linchpin. Here's the big thing. People for centuries have tried to take Paul and put him over here and James and put him over here. They say, what does faith in Christ have to do with works? They've tried to separate that. They've tried to say, what, what do we do with the law of Moses? We still try and do that. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, struggled with the book of James, the letter that James wrote, and didn't even know if it should have been in the Bible <laughs> because he struggled so much with, okay, this talks a lot about works. He really loved about what Paul talked about. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, but this talks about works. And people for centuries have done that. Okay, well, if I believe in, in God by faith, then what do, what do works have to do with it? 
You see, Paul and James in no way are saying that. They're, they're not divided on this, but we have been. And they're trying to make sense of what do we do with this? Why is this such a big deal? Because if for a moment we begin to move out of what does it mean to have a fixed theology, and they begin, we read this passage and we go, okay, well, maybe we need to figure out if we do these good things, then we see ourselves as Christians. Do you see how the theology and methodology can switch? How many of us, when we have the conversation, (laughs) and, and we do it all the time, we say, hey, how's... How's your relationship with the Lord? If, you're just, if someone was to ask you that question just generally, how do we typically answer? We typically answer with doing type answers. I haven't prayed much lately. I haven't been in the Bible much lately. My church attendance is, is spotty. I've been involved in a Bible study. You know, we kind of start going in that direction. You know how often I get asked, and this is a question that's so much bigger to answer. Hey, how are things at at Music Row? How are things at Christ Press Music Row? And that's a huge question. But you know what's funny? Most people, if I was to talk about it, what are the answers that they want to hear? How many people are coming? (laughs) How many services do you have? What programs you got going on? Okay, those aren't bad things. Nothing I've said is bad, but think about where we go. We slide quickly into the doing, into the method. And this is the discussion that they're having here about this. See, Paul has developed a reputation of, of being heard as, okay, well, now that you're a Christian, all the works, you don't have to do them. Paul has never said that. In fact, James knows that he hasn't said that. And they're having a discussion about what do we do with the false idea that everybody has when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus. That it's not just the doing, it's a relationship, it's who we are. It means we're connected to someone. And they're struggling with that. Does it sound familiar? because it's a deep part of who we are. See, we easily switch the method for the theology because here's here's what's happened over the years. And I heard this some time ago by a theologian named R.C. Sproul who's who's since passed away. He's a great writer, thinker. He talked about um, how in many universities and in uh, colleges across campuses, I used to work in one, so I've studied this. There used to be a department of theology, and it moved from that to being called a department of religion. Now, this isn't just a a commentary on every school and things are bad, but it it shows you, you know the difference between religion and theology? Religion is the study of our behavior towards a deity. It's essentially saying, hey, what, what, what do you do? What's religion to you? It's like the commonalities of morals and things that we share. Theology is the study of the character of God. It literally means study of God, his character, who is he? 
And think about what we can typically do. If we begin to switch those two things and we begin to have a fixed methodology and a flexible theology, what do we do to God's character? We begin to base everything on our own standards and our work and our behavior and our religion. It does become that. And that's why so many of us are exhausted and like sometimes coming to church feels like eating chalk and Sometimes just talking about that, it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta pray more. I gotta, you know, like, it's almost like you're mustering yourself up to do more for God. It's because we've switched those things and we don't even know it. That's the discussion here, the debate. In fact, it was such a big deal, they had what was called a council over this in Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council. And that's where it goes into this and says, uh, and they quote this in verse 25, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, why did they list these four things? Because this huge council gets together to decide and say, hey, how do we keep the main thing to main thing? That... As a Gentile, and here's where it's huge, (laughs) and it moves from this fixed theology, and how do we have a flexible methodology? Because here's what's happening, and this is the entire book of Galatians talks about this, and other books. I mean, if you read this throughout the New Testament, Jew, Gentile, the struggle is, do you have to become Jewish to become a Christian? And you know what you're reading in this passage? This passage is saying, do you have to lose your Jewishness to be a Christian? Now, in our minds, we're thinking, huh, is that a big deal? Do you think, think for a moment, the enormity of what that means for us? To become a Christian, does that mean you need to change racially? Politically? The way you look, the way you act, your interests, what does that do? This is huge, this is what they're saying. And that council met to say, no, we cannot let those things out here determine what does it mean to be in Jesus? What is the, is the good news really good if you have to become someone else? If you have to take on a a whole new race, a whole new culture, or get rid of the one you're in? The good news is good because Jesus came. Hey, guess for a second, a first century Jew came to die for us 21st century Gentiles? And that's what this table is even in front of me for. This is why we have to learn what is the fixed theology that we stand on. Because if we as a church, and I say we because this isn't about me. I'm the one that has the mic on and gets to speak. But this is the scripture that drives me to encourage us to say our fixed theology can't be a statement or we dress a certain way, or these are the kind of people that go here or there. If we start putting anything into that, 
other than, other than who we are in Christ. That's why that, it comes up about circumcision again or the law of Moses. Then we lose who we are in Jesus. And the good news isn't really that good. And see, this is what changes us to not just come to church and kind of say, I'm in church, now I know, but to actually go transform. How do you actually live out a flexible methodology? Here's what's cool about this passage. James and Paul begin discussing, right, right after this. In verse 21, he says, hey, there's a reputation, Paul, in verse 21, that you, you're teaching Gentiles, and we know that's not true, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise, to not the customs of Jewishness. You, you, you have to get rid of your Jewishness to become a Christian. And we know that's not true. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can do. Here's an opportunity for you to jump in. Now, at first it seems like, okay, why is he shaving head, jumping in with these four people that we don't even know who they are? <laughs> Because they're thinking, how do we apply the gospel here so that we can appeal to people that may not believe in it at all? I'll tell you what, one of the things I remember when I was a chaplain at Vanderbilt working in that office was how difficult Paul was as a figure, particularly even today for those who are, um, real, who are Jewish, who follow Jewish customs. Paul is a very, very, very difficult and not well-liked figure. And the reason is, is because still to this day, there is that understanding of, he, of what you read here. They've been told that you're teaching that the Jews got, got to get rid of Moses and circumcision is still an idea today. It's still a struggle. And we need to understand Paul is not doing it. Paul takes up purity in order to show, he takes up this purification in order to show he's willing to step into a world without losing who he is in Jesus. He's willing to step into this world that he knows to show that it's still valid, it's okay. And what he's taking up, it's really interesting here, in verse 23, do therefore what we tell you, now listen to this, we have four men who are under a vow. We don't know who these four men are. James has this idea. Take these men, purify yourself among them, and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. And then this will help ease that. Now, what this probably was was called a Nazarite vow. <laughs> these four men had taken up a Nazarite vow. You can look, read this in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. You know, one of those books that when you start your Bible reading plan, you get caught in numbers at the beginning of the Bible. You're like, numbers. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is one of those passages, though, that really talks about, okay, why purify? It was an opportunity to set yourself apart, okay, to put yourself apart. And what they would do as a Nazarite, it was certain vows where you would not touch anything with grapes, for a certain time as a voluntary thing, you would grow your hair really long, well, as long as you could for seven days for Paul, and that you wouldn't touch anything dead. And they're saying, if you take on this vow with these people and then pay for their expenses at the end, because what they would do at the end of their 30 days and his seven days, they would shave their heads and they would burn their hair. 
And that was the sacrifice of the Lord. Now, why is Paul able to do that and willing to do that? This is like, okay, this is weird stuff. Paul is willing to step into that because he knows something that that we need to remember. He knows he doesn't have to take on this vow to wash his insides. He can take on a purification vow that represents a lot of things, but he doesn't have to do it because he knows that there is no amount of vow that he can take to wash his inside. And so, because he knows the only way we can be washed inside, purified in reality, is through Jesus, then he can step over into other people where they are and what they need in order that they can hear the true gospel. And that is the true gospel. Here's the big question. (laughs) Do we really know what washes our insides? See, the flexible methodology, the way that we carry the good news out means that, and I think we get scared of this often. This is why we're like, I don't know, uh, who do I talk to? How do I connect to these people? I'm afraid to speak about Jesus. Is because we're so afraid about what may get us dirty on the outside that we forget what cleanses us on the inside. Can I just tell you just a couple things that I think we need to think about from this application? I think if we remember our fixed theology, we can walk as a church, as people, to share the good news of Jesus in our workplaces, our homes, our friendships, wherever we are, with a lot more freedom and less fear if we know that the purification isn't about us. See, notice, even when Paul does this, it still costs him. Verse verse 27 to 32 is the people see him still. He's done the purification. He's shaved his head. They see him finished. And yet, guess what? The flexible methodology doesn't change anybody. Just because they see it, it doesn't mean everybody's like, oh. But God uses it. He knows who he is. We are going to be missed all the time. If we try and figure out a fixed method to share the good news so that we aren't missed and don't feel the awkwardness, friends, we will never find it. The number one thing I think we fear is being awkward. Guess what? We are. (laughs) You are. I am. We just are. We believe, think about this, if you're here and you actually would say you're a follower of Jesus, you're already awkward because you believe that a first century Jewish man took up a cross that like hanging above me, died for your sin, the things that you feel shame about today, you, you believe that he took those and he rose from the dead. Do you think that's not weird? You know how we know it's true? Because this table in front of me. Here's how we know it's true. And, and I love that my 13-year-old son asked me, asked me this and my wife this yesterday in a way that he probably didn't realize that it was so, such a good question. He said, what is this? What's communion about? <laughs> he said, what is this? 
I love that he asked that because it made me go, you know what? I've done a, probably a terrible job <laughs> explaining to him and maybe to other people, what is this table? You know, this table isn't my table. It is a fixed table set by Jesus Christ. There's nothing about this table that I can change or make different for you. You know what, who does it? It is all him. It is all in Jesus. And what rests on him is that his body and blood actually get into your life and transform you. So when you come take from this table, it's not that just you just remember really hard that Jesus lived and died. It's actually God, the Holy Spirit, is at work to feed you by faith, to feed your insides in a way that you cannot. That's literally what's happening. You can't come to this table to ask for purity. You can't come to this table to hope that it changes you in a way that, 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 that only Jesus can. It is by coming to this table you're saying, I'm in relationship to you, Jesus. Do your work in me so that I can live it out. You wanna know how to live out the gospel? It, this is how it works. It's so simple, and yet who's doing the complex work? It's Jesus. You don't have to think of some cool method to change. You live it out in wisdom. This is why we meet in small groups and in our, in our connect groups and in our, in our uh, uh, men's groups and women's groups and, and student groups and all those things to ask the question, hey, how do I apply this? You know, I still ask that. I don't have all the answers to that. I still am asking, wait, how do I speak to this person very different than this person? How do I step into their world? How do I show empathy about where they are before I ever demand something from someone? What does it look like for me to love them in the good news? Because it's, it doesn't, <laughs> that's not what changes me. God does. It's his hand that does that. Praise be to God that he has fixed his relationship because his character doesn't change based on what we think of him. His character is his character, and that's what changes us so that we can live it out in truth and in glory to his name. Let's stand together.